Okay, so I have a confession to make to start out with here. Um, I hate, I hate rice cakes. <laughs> and and it, it's, it's actually worse than that. I'm actually prejudiced against rice cakes because I don't even want to give people the opportunity to explain them. Um, I don't, listen, I, I do not need someone's fancy argument to try to convince me that there's something other than a poorly suited costume for air. Um, I mean, they're obviously little more than a veneer of tasteless rice molecules trying to get me to pay for something I can breathe for free, okay? Um, and everybody knows, listen, and listen, I'm not unreasonable. I will eat a rice cake. I will eat a rice cake if it's covered with about two inches worth of meat, peanut butter, and potato chips. It's not that I won't talk about these things. And, um, and listen, every, and everybody knows there are no help for dieting people, okay? You can eat a whole bag of the things, and they don't even make you less hungry while you're eating them. <laughs> right? Um, and listen, I, you know, I have heard people talk about how places like McDonald's and Culver's and places like that need to be investigated for having meals with too many calories in them that make people healthy. Listen, I think rice cakes need to be investigated for the simple idea that they think, they tell us there's any calories at all in a whole bag of them. That's just got to be dishonest. Um, Because, listen, I don't know about you, but when I'm hungry, when I'm actually really hungry, I, I want something that I can sink my teeth into, okay? I want something with some substance. I want something that's serious. I want something that's not fake food, okay? Um, and um, I do—listen, I, I do not want something that's already fully digested by the time it hits my epiglottis. You know what I'm saying? I mean, and— I think that that's what, that that's what this passage is about. This passage is about Jesus looking for faith you can actually sink your teeth into. That's what this passage is about. Jesus is a, is a king who is of himself of real substance, and he has every intention of creating a people of real substance for our own sake and for his glory. And he actually demands that we become a people of real substance because we're meant to become a people of substance for the world's sake. And that is a non-negotiable, this passage teaches us. A non-negotiable. Um, he has come to redeem a people whose faith is a reality, not just an activity. He's come to demand the presence of fruit, not just leaves. He's come to make a people who have a kind of spirituality that you can really sink your teeth into. Now, I think about this passage. This is an abnormal passage. This is the only passage that records a destructive miracle of Jesus. It's the only one. And it's the only passage that records any kind of violent behavior on the part of Jesus. Okay, it's the only place he gets violent, only place he does something miraculous that's destructive. Okay, and it's the start of the Passion Weekend. This is a very important passage. And if it's an important passage, it probably has a very important point. So what I want to do is take a couple minutes here on the whole fig tree incident. Because a lot of people get all turned around and fussy over that. This is evidence that Jesus is mean. 
It, no, it's just evidence you didn't read it carefully is what it is. Um, and then what I want to do is I want to look at two things this passage tells us about Jesus and two things it tells us about us, okay? And I'm going to do that faster than normal. <clears throat> the clue in the passage about the fig tree is in the structure, okay? It's in the structure. And it's in the Old Testament references, okay? Here's, here's something you got to know about the Bible. If you don't pick up on the Old Testament references, you're not going to get a lot of passages. You're not going to get a lot of passages. Now, we'll talk about that when he clears the temple in just a minute. But, but here, he, he comes in, and notice that he curses the fig tree, and then it stops with the fig tree, and then he goes to the temple, right? And then it's back to the fig tree. In fact, if you read the whole passage again, it's actually, he goes into the temple, he curses the fig tree, he clean, cleanses the temple, back to the fig tree, he's back in the temple. Now, if we are careful readers, we ought, to, we ought to pick up pretty fast that this whole fig tree gig has virtually nothing to do with a fig tree. Virtually nothing. It has everything to do with the temple— and the leadership of the temple, and therefore everything to do with the mission of God's redemption. Okay, this is a cosmic and global incident. This is not a horticultural incident. Okay, you've got to get that. You have got to get that. Does everybody have that? This is a global, cosmic, salvation, history, redemptive incident. This is not a horticultural incident. Okay? And if you cannot get your head around that God could curse a tree to demonstrate the purpose of global redemption, then you are a tree lover, and God bless you. <laughs> or as we used to say in the South, God bless your little heart. Which is kind of an insult, so I won't say that. The point, of, the point here of the cursing of the fig tree is that Jesus the King is cursing all pretensions that set up like their true religion, but have totally lost the root of life. Um, he is saying, false religion is over. I will not accept it. I will never accept it. You can do it all you want. You can pretend. You can say, you can, you can tell each other that what you're doing is totally faithfulness. You can, you can come up with all kinds of elaborate arguments as to why everything that you do that isn't faithful is totally faithful and why we're all wonderful religious people together and we can come together and we can encourage each other that we're fantastic. And he's just going to say, you need to understand that does not move me at all. Not, not for one second do I get psychologically confused at all the slogans you might create and all the activity you might create and all the buildings you might create to, to tell yourselves and each other that you're fantastic. The fact is, is either you have faith, you worship the one true God, and that works out in peace and justice and beauty and goodness and love and sacrifice, or you create a lot of activity, you do a lot of stuff, you look really cool, and there is no substance. And he's just saying, I will never, ever, 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 ever be confused by that. You need to know that. And it was culminating in him coming to his own temple that had now been built for the second time because he had to destroy it the first time. And he basically says, everything I said about this temple the first time when I had to destroy it is all true again. It's all true again. 
and I'm going to have to wipe you out and wipe this temple out and destroy everything all over again. And I'm going to have to, I'm going to set up a whole nother system. Because, because it's died on the vine. It's a tree with leaves and no fruit. Right? Let's go through the passage just briefly. So Jesus sees this tree. So he's coming in from Bethany, and he sees this tree by the road, and it's a fig tree. He's like, hey, it's a fig tree. Okay, so it's April, right? Now you might go, okay, so um, why would he think there's— I mean, it says in the passage, right, it's not the season for figs, right? Which means it's not the season of the fig harvest. That's what it means, which would be July. So he's coming into this tree, and the tree's in leaf, so he goes over to it. You're like, what, is he going to eat the leaves? Well, here's why. What you need to know about figs is they bud before they leaf. And you can eat the buds. Now, apparently they don't taste very good. But they're edible. And they're available. And Jesus is apparently hungry. And I don't know what you tell your kids, but what I, what I tell my kids is, if you're hungry, you'll eat what's food. So he goes up to this tree, and he looks for fruit on it. Now, one of the things you also have to know is, is that figs will often ripen unpredictably, but not in mass. So on a fig tree, you'll get what are called early figs, where you'll just get—see the one fig? He's just kind of like—he's just not on the right timetable, this guy, right? He's just like, I think I'll ripen right now! Woo! <laughs> and um, so the, he just—and so, and here's the thing. Um, they don't—the owners don't go out to harvest for these, right? You're not going to send all your workmen out for work. Like on—you don't—you know, because you have to—you you hire additional men to harvest in the ancient world, right? You don't have people on site all the time. So you're not going to hire a bunch of people to go through all your fig trees to look for the two or three of these that might ripen early. So it was totally cool to just go by and pick them if you're a pedestrian. Because they're not coming for them. It's just one fig. So Jesus shows up at this fig tree because there is the off chance that there could be one or two or more of these figs. I mean, it could be a wacky fig tree. Maybe it'll be like eight. Who knows? So he shows up, and what the scripture says is, he doesn't find anything but leaves. No figs, maybe no buds, who knows? And then the disciples are right there and they hear him say, let nobody eat fruit from you again, right? And then they go to the temple, right? Now, one of the, th- now, it's, now it's not a direct Old Testament reference. But one of the last books of the Old Testament, God is speaking about the destruction of his people in the first temple, and there's this passage, okay? This is God speaking. He says, What misery is mine? I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyards. There is no cluster of grapes, n- none of the early figs that I crave. So in this, in this passage, God is a poor person, and God— um, wants to either come at the end of the growing season where he could go through and pick the extra grapes that the people who picked didn't pick, or come early and find some fig that ripened early that he's allowed to pick as a gleaning poor person. And he's saying, so he's saying, so basically he's saying, I'm coming to my people to find true spirituality, justice, generosity, the sorts of things that the law should bring about. And I don't find it. I don't find it. It's not there. And so Jesus comes to this fig tree on the way into the temple with this Old Testament passage here in the background of the first judgment, and he, and he curses this tree. Now, you got to pick up all those connections, right? Because what he's saying is, he's come to curse, he's come to curse it again. Which, which sounds mean. But there's, 
There's a time where God believes judgment is appropriate. It's late. It delays. He's very patient, but there's a time where he just says, you know what, enough is enough. This is the end. And the reason it's the end, we'll see in just a second, is for a very specific reason. But first, let's talk about two things about Jesus. The first is, is that this is the place where Mark makes very clear that Jesus is not just a teacher. He's not just a wandering prophet. Jesus is a king. He is the king. He is the ultimate king. There is no one close. There is no one near to his level of authority, glory, greatness. And it's kind of ironic because he comes in real humble, like he just rides a, a young horse into town, right? It's not spectacular, but he rides in like a triumphant king, which is kind of funny because if this is the day of the Passion Week that most New Testament scholars think it is, on the other side of town, Herod would have ridden in, in a procession, like a king. Meanwhile, on the other side of town, Jesus rides in on the other side because he's not going to the palace. He's going to his palace, the temple. And he comes in, but he comes in like a king. He rides a horse. There are people before him and after him. People essentially coronate him. Just commoners, people nobody paying any attention to. Poor people. But he comes in riding a horse with a coronation. But one of the things that we see is he's absolutely in control. He sends his disciples. He tells them exactly what's going to happen. And they do it. He comes back. He rides into town and all this stuff happens. And one of the things that I didn't think about until this time is that, and he fulfills an Old Testament prophecy when he does it, but he comes in. And have you ever thought about this? He is riding into a city, into an unruly crowd, a horse that's never been ridden. Have you ever thought of that from an equestrian perspective? That's really nutty. I went online and, f- and found this, like, it, like riding um, a, an unbroken horse, right? Because nobody's ever, nobody's trained this horse. And so, it's, is buying a young, unbroken horse a stupid idea? Answer, yes! <laughs> and I'm so tired of explaining why. <laughs> and every answer, there were like eight answers under that, and they were all like, yes, it is a very dumb idea. Yes! It is a very dumb idea to buy an unbroken horse. Yes! But meanwhile, these guys go and get the horse. They give it to Jesus. They throw cloaks over it. There's no saddle. There's no bridle. And he just gets up on it, and it just goes. That's it. He's just—he's the king of everything. I mean, he's the king of a horse's psychology. He's the king of—well, he's—he's the king. That's just all there is to it. And you got to get that. Because you can't go through the Christian religion with Jesus as your buddy. It does not work. I'm just telling you. It does not—Jesus as your buddy doesn't work. Doesn't work. Jesus is a good friend, but he's never only a friend. Okay, so there's that. In his kingly work, you can see, he comes in in the first part to inspect the temple, right? That's a triumphal entry. Where does he go as king? Where does he go? Where does the king visit first? The temple, right? He goes and inspects the temple, and then he goes home, right? And then he comes back the next day, and he clears the temple. And then he goes home, and then what? Is he, well, he comes back, and the, the, uh, the, the priests come, and they corner him to say, hey, where do you get the authority to do this? And what does it say? He's walking through the temple courts. He's policing the temple. He's like, get those rugs out of here. Get those, get those horses out of here. Get those lambs out of here. Get that stuff out of here. Like, where— yeah, I mean, that had to look nutty. Like this, a Galilean peasant shows up at the temple, comes in and looks one evening. Hmm, don't think I like this. Comes back the next day, starts turning over tables and swinging whips around, and then 
comes back the next day to make sure nobody's come back. When that market was under the legal authority of the high priest and the governor. <laughs> he can do that. He's the king. And he doesn't have to have human authority. He doesn't, you don't have to give him authority. He's already got it. Your, in my opinion, as to whether or not Jesus has sufficient authority to lay claim of your life and the entire universe has nothing to do with whether or not you give him that authority. This is not a governance of the consent of the governed. Okay, so that's the first thing. The second thing is that Jesus' focus on truth and redemption cannot be altered. One of the things that we need to recognize is that when we come to Jesus for our own comfort or for him to make sure everything we want happens just the way we want it, that isn't going to work. And here's why it's going to work. Because he is going to focus his attention on truth and redemption, and that cannot be altered. You cannot change Jesus' focus. And so if your focus comes in along with and parallels and becomes part of Jesus' focus, it is a wonderful thing because you will ride with him in what he wishes to accomplish for his glory and for our good. But if you get at cross purposes with that, Jesus is not going to put the brakes on for the train, okay? You, it, it's, it's a tantamount to standing in the tracks with an oncoming train and saying, let's go that way. And then the conductor goes, stand there if you want. I'm not. I'm not engaging the brakes. We are going that way. And you don't have to stand in front of me. But listen, that may sound like a stark contrast to you, but listen, that's what we do all the time. All the time. And I'm not talking about them out there. I'm talking about us in here. Them out there, they do it too. But we in here do it a lot. And so why is that such a big issue? It's a big issue because Jesus, when he tells them why he flips over all the tables and runs everybody out of there, he quotes two Old Testament passages when he does that. He quotes a passage in Isaiah 56 and a passage in Jeremiah 7. Okay, he's not merely saying, it's too loud in here and you guys are making too much money. It's, it's much bigger than that. Look at this passage. This is, this is, I'm starting in Isaiah 56. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. So you get the context. Because the priests, they knew the context. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this. The man who holds it fast. Who keeps the Sabbath with, without desecrating it. Who keeps his hand from doing any evil. Then he says this. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and holds fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than those of sons or daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. Okay, do you get the pun? Do you get the pun? He will give the eunuchs an everlasting name that will not be cut off, right? But also remember this. In Leviticus, it said that no, no male with a damaged appearance could come into the holy place. So even a Levite who had a hunchback or genital issues like this or so on, they weren't allowed. 
And what God is saying is he's going to make a memorial for the eunuch inside the temple in the holy place where they could never go. A memorial better than sons or daughters. Think about that promise. This is the most—let me finish reading the passage— and foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, who love the name of the Lord and who worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain. That's the temple. That is his holy mountain. And give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Okay, that is the most explicit Old Testament passage of the including of everyone in God's covenant. Say whatever you want about the exclusiveness of the Old Testament for the Jews. By the time you get to Isaiah 56, God makes it absolutely clear that his holy mountain, his very temple, the altar on it and the sanctuary inside of it is for everybody. And the priests set up shop for their, their flea market, the only place all these people can come to pray. See that? So when, so when Jesus quotes the last verse of that, these priests know exactly what he's saying. And Mark, I mean, for all that we know, Jesus gave a two-hour lesson on the Isaiah 50, chapter 50s. But he, he summarizes it with that verse. But then the other one, the next part's even worse because he says, you've made it a den of robbers, right? Well, that is actually a, an Old Testament reference. That's not just like you're a bunch of thieves. It's worse than that. Much worse than being called a bunch of thieves. Now, I don't particularly like being called a thief. But it's worse than that because he's quoting this passage in Jeremiah 7, verses 1 to 11, which is, the context is the destruction of the first temple. So these guys know exactly what Jesus is saying. You are exactly in the spiritual position of when God destroyed the first temple. It's not a good position to be in. He says this, This is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. So Jeremiah was supposed to go to the temple to say this, right? Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways. And your actions. And I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The older Christians among us will use this as an excuse as to why we shouldn't sing Christian choruses. But basically, just to simply repeat, oh, this is God's house, so everything that's true of God's house is now true of us. He says that's deceptive to think that. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other, other justly, if you do not oppress the alien, there's that foreigner again, the alien, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow the other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place and the land I gave to your forefathers forever and ever. But look, you're trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder and commit adultery and perjury and burn incest to Baal and follow other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe? Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house 
which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. Okay, think about that. He's not just calling them thieves. I mean, what is a den of robbers? What is that? It is the shady little place they go to be able to do what they want to do without any accountability, right? That's what the den, the den of robbers is. It's a secret place where the thieves can go and be thieves with no accountability, nobody overseeing, where they're totally free to be as evil as they want to be, right? And Jesus is saying, you've turned the temple into that. You're not just thieves. Oh, oh God, that you would just be thieves, he's saying to these guys. He's saying, you're worse than that. You have, through deceptive words and the way you frame arguments and the way you talk about your theology and the way you veneer goodness in the temple and the way you structure these things and the way you have convinced yourself that all these things you do to look holy are holy, you, you are totally sincere that you think that you're wonderful, but you have actually made the only holy place a den of robbers. When what was it supposed to be? God's holy mountain where he would bring all people from all nations and every place and every, from every tongue and he would bring them together and there would be a house of prayer and they would all belong to him and they would be his and he would accept their offerings and he would put memorials for the most outcast of them in the most holy place. That is what it was supposed to be. And friends, in the mind of King Jesus, that contrast is not bearable. It's not bearable. His focus on truth and redemption cannot be altered. Cannot be altered. And if we, though pledging good faith towards him, in reality stand against his redemptive purposes for the world, it's like standing on a train track yelling, stop, because you want a train taking medicine to dying kids to turn around and go the other way because you need to hitch a ride. There's two basic human reactions to this, and we're going to talk about the first next week because that's what the passage is about because this goes on. Um, and that is the first human response, the impulse to this is subversion. I mean, what do, what do the priests do the minute Jesus says this? It says really plainly, they look for a way to kill him. I don't like what you're saying, so I'm going to get rid of you. Think about it this way. If... Jesus' vision for the world, what you and I were meant to participate in, can be enormous. But in terms of our vision of the world, all it takes is a thumb to block out the sky, right? I mean, you can take that and you go, oh, look, the Andes Mountains, and it would look pretty if there was less lighting. And um, you, could, you can take your thumb and you can hold it up and you can block out 50% of it probably if you hold your thumb at arm's length. But the closer you get your thumb to your eye— the more it blocks out until if you get it close enough, it'll block out everything. And that's what selfish ambition is like. That's what coming to Jesus for our own purposes is like. And as time goes on and as we convince ourselves and self-deceive ourselves about more and more and more and more, our thumb that used to just block out half of what Jesus wanted blocks out more and more and more and more and more until we, like these priests who are very devout religious men, can think it's okay 
to throw out all the nations of the world at one of the most holy days of the year because you want better product placement. That's okay. I mean, historically, we know that this market already existed on the Mount of Olives, not even a mile away. If Jews wanted to trade in their coins and buy doves and buy lambs and buy all this stuff, they didn't even have to go a mile to buy them. But for the sake of the ease of the people who were in and the profitability of the people who controlled the closer market, they went for it. Think about that. We'll look at implications of that for us next week. But the other is dullness. Remember Jesus says this, they go to the olive tree in the morning and it's withered. And what do the disciples say? Well, of course it's withered, right? No, they're surprised. Can you believe that? They're like, Lord, that fig tree that you cursed is withering. I mean, can you just imagine, like, I mean, we were like, Jesus, Jesus, and Jesus declared, have faith in God. I mean, I don't know about how Jesus said it, but I'd be like, oh my gosh, guys, have faith in God. I mean, seriously? It's a tree. And so he, you know, he comes in and he goes, listen, guys, look, look, it's not just me. I mean, Anybody has that authority. I mean, you can take a little kid. And if they pray believing in God and forgiving their brother, and they believe, man, well, I'll have have the mountain fall into the sea. Don't you get it? It's not even me being King Jesus. It's it's that God is there. But what we do, and see, here's the teaching in prayer. He says, what we do in prayer is this. The one thing we're supposed to do as created dependent beings, believe in God, that we don't do. But yet we still turn around and play God by not forgiving people who sinned against us. So the normal thing as a created dependent sinful being would be to forgive everybody who's ever sinned against us because we just don't have any business holding any grudges. And then believe in God, that he's really there, that he could really do something, that he would really change us. And then Jesus is like, boom! Stuff will start happening. I mean, that's when things start happening. But the, na- what, the natural, dull human being like me, maybe some of you, is to not play the human, but instead play God. Well, is it any wonder that we can pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and wonder why there's literally nothing happening, right? Now, I don't know about you, but um, when I get to the end of that passage, um, I feel like a nervous little olive tree, frankly. Because um, I, I, I may not be quite at the place where those priests were at that time, but it took them a lifetime to get there. In fact, it didn't just take them a lifetime. It took them generations to get there. They watched their fathers do what their fathers did, do what their fathers did. And after a couple, a few hundred years they'd gotten to that point, okay? So if I haven't gotten there quite yet at 33, well then, you know, that doesn't mean I'm far behind. I may be way ahead of where they would have been. And so I look at that and I recognize that Jesus, his pitch where he's going cannot be altered. And I look at how much of my life is really about my self-interest. It's all about me blocking out as much as I can with my thumb and trying to get Jesus to bless what I'm trying to accomplish. 
and I just end up a nervous little fig tree. And so I think there's two things that we have to remember um, as we get ready to leave, recognizing that that passage says what it says. And that's this, that um, that the same God who cursed the fig tree bore the curse for those who would believe. That's the first point. Deuteronomy says explicitly that he who is hung on a tree is under the very curse of God. And that the one who rightly cursed the temple, the one who rightly cursed the fig tree, the one who rightly destroyed the first temple and exiled the people, the one who will not be averted from his redemptive purposes, also created the redemptive purposes. And the same people he would disperse, he would regather. To the same people who continually deserve his curse, he would bear that curse on the cross so that those who believe in him would not bear their own curse. That's a good king who curses rightly and then will come in mercifully and bear the curse that he, he rightly brought upon us. Because here's the thing, if, if Jesus did not do what he did there, he would not be interesting. He, there would be nothing noble about him as a king that we would go, our hearts would go, oh, that's the kind of king I've always wanted. The problem for us is the kind of king deep down we've always wanted is the same king we should be rightly terrified of. That's the paradox of the king. The king who rightly returns to a sinful people is the king that the people should be so glad to coordinate but terrified that he would give them the penalty they deserve for treason. And only this king comes and curses and bears the curse to those who believe. But then you can have this issue. What about the fact that I believe so terribly? Because that's true for most of us. It'd be one thing if I was preaching like on the streets evangelistically and people actually stopped and listened and I was like, you can believe. And they'd be, oh, that's fine. But for those of us who've tried to believe for years or even just a short time, what you may have noticed is that your believing stinks. I mean, I don't know about you. I've, I've noticed that personally. And what, what I want you to know is that the same king, the same Jesus had another fig tree. Or at least one in a story that he talked about in Luke 13. I don't think I have a slide for this, do I? No. Um, in, in Luke 13, 69, this is the very end, so listen carefully to this. He told this parable. <clears throat> he said, A man had a fig tree. It was planted in his vineyard. And he went to look for fruit on it, but he didn't find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Now remember, an Israelite couldn't even take fruit off of a tree for something like five years. So this is a seven-year-old tree that isn't bearing any fruit, okay? That's bad. But the guy in charge of the, of the vineyard says this. He said, sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year. And I'll dig around it and I'll fertilize it. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then we'll cut it down. Now, what you need to know about that parable is that both men in that parable, are, it's the voice of God. The stern voice of, this is the mission, this is what we're doing, this is what they were created for. A judgment will have to come. This is the unalterable purpose of redemption. That voice is very real. But the other voice of God, the compassionate one that says, 
Let's wait a little longer. Let's cut the grass back a little more. Let's give the, the tree a little more chance to pull in the nutrients. And let's fertilize it. Let's give it, let's give it more than it could ever possibly deserve. Let's take a seven-year fruitless tree and let's cut it wider and fertilize it more and nurture it and care for it and nurture it and care for it. And let, let's, let's see if one more year, irrationally, we might hope that it might produce a little bit of fruit so we won't have to cut it down. That's Jesus' other tree. That's, that's what you have to have in your mind when you think about this fig tree that gets cursed rightly. You've got to have that other fig tree in your mind. The fig tree where Jesus says, even though, even though his faith is so bad, and even though uh, he is an idolater heart, and even though, let's, there might be a little life in there. Let's, there may be something that's not totally irredeemable. Let's just cut around a little bit more. Let's, let's long suffer with this a little bit more. Maybe he'll turn. Maybe she'll believe. Maybe, maybe, maybe the, the penny will drop and she'll get it. Maybe she'll see the, the outskirts of my glory and be overcome with the goodness of the purposes I have for redeeming all people. Maybe they'll see that they don't want to live in a den of robbers, that they want to invite people to a temple on the holy mountain that everyone's included, everybody's brought in, everybody, even the most furthest outcast, can have a memorial. Maybe, maybe there's time yet. That is the heart of this Savior, of this King, for you, for you, right now. And um, just open your heart and throw some buds. You know what I'm saying? Just let him come in and invite him to cut around and fertilize. See, did you hear it? He's going to do the work. He's going he's gonna to cut around. He's going to fertilize. He's going to do the work. If you just open and invite and embrace and say, can you get some buds to pop on me? And can you pull me into the stream of that redemption so that I can live for something bigger than my little thumb blocking out the sun? And he will. He will. Father, um, we pray that you'd help us to hear the meaning of this message. We pray that recognizing that Mark is going to teach, show us how you will come and redeem the very thing that you must curse. Um, that the very thing that we should deep down love in your great nobility, um, that you also are compassionate enough to save us from. And Father, we pray that um, we would be the second fig tree. Would you, Father, would you, would you grant us to be this second fig tree as individuals, every individual in this room. And would you create this church and your churches in Madison, would you grant us to be that second fig tree? Amen. Would you rise for the benediction?